welcome to The Family Planning Files, a podcast from the National Clinical Training Center for Family Planning. I'm your host, Katherine Atchison. On today's podcast, part of our ongoing series on reproductive justice, we'll be discussing environmental health and exposures within the reproductive justice framework. Our guest today is Katie Huffling, DNP, RN, CNM, FAAN. Dr. Huffling is the Executive Director for the Alliance of Nurses for Healthy Environments and has written and organized extensively on the intersection of health and environmental issues, such as climate change and chemical policy. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Huffling. We're so excited to speak with you today. Thanks so much for having me. It's a thrill to be here. Early in our reproductive justice series, we defined what exactly reproductive justice is. But how do you and your organization define environmental health? And how do you all see it fitting in within the reproductive justice framework? Yeah, so we have a very broad view of environmental health. It The environment is anywhere where we live, work, play, worship the air we breathe, the water we drink, the the soil that we walk upon. And we think of the pregnant person as the fetus's first environment. So it's anywhere that you could come in contact with some type of environmental exposure. And I view environmental health as a key component to reproductive justice. When a person makes the decision to have a child, they have the right and be able to raise that child in an environment that helps support that child to be healthy and to thrive. And so looking at the environment is a key component to that. Thank you for defining that. And what are some current examples of environmental health issues or exposures or problems that are kind of going on in the U.S. today? And How exactly do these environmental health factors influence sexual and reproductive health? I'd say the biggest issue that we're facing here today, both in the United States and globally, is climate change. And I think for many folks, they'd be like, well, how does climate change impact reproductive health? And actually, there's more and more research that's really showing it can have significant impacts on our ability to have children, to have safe and healthy pregnancies, to have children that grow up healthy and strong. For example, with climate change, as we're seeing temperatures increase, more days in the summer where it's you know really hot, very humid, in areas that we may not have experienced this before, It can be really challenging for a pregnant person to be able to stay well hydrated on those really hot summer days. And, you know, later in pregnancy, hydration is really key to preventing preterm labor. And so, you know, as a nurse midwife, talking with my nurse midwife colleagues and OBGYN colleagues, you know, on those hot summer days, when we're just not used to the heat, those are the days where you see more women coming into the ER or into triage, having preterm contractions. And it's a lot of it has to do with the heat and not staying well hydrated. We also find, you know, on these high heat days, when the heat goes up, the air quality goes down. 
And there's a lot of research that's showing that poor air quality can be associated with pregnancy complications such as preterm birth, small for gestational age babies, stillbirth. You know, all these things that all of us working in the reproductive health space are really trying to prevent. They just released the maternal mortality data for 2021, I believe. And that's our mortality data is getting worse and worse. And this is something as we're looking to address maternal health in this country, if we're not looking at climate change, I think we're going to have a really tough time reducing maternal morbidity and mortality because it does have such clear links to pregnancy complications. Other issues that maybe aren't as dark and easy to see are, I think, some more subtle and long-term exposures that are occurring. For example, when I first got into the environmental health space, like I was completely shocked to realize that Many of the products that are, you know, on the shelves at our local grocery store or department store, a lot of the ingredients haven't been tested for safety. And our regulations, they're really not very good at getting harmful ingredients out of those products. And so just thinking about, you know, personal care products, you think about all of the things that you use every day, your shampoo, conditioner, soap, moisturizer, you know, the list goes on. And you think of how many different ingredients are in those. You're potentially throughout the day being exposed to some chemicals that could be linked to different reproductive issues, infertility, reproductive cancers, you know, and we really don't have good data on you know how that long-term exposure could increase your risk of developing some of those issues. And to kind of build on that, about how many reproductive age people in the U.S. live and work in kind of those, shall we say, like chemical or environmental exposures? Obviously, we're all affected by climate change. We all live on Earth. But there mm-hmm. are people who have higher levels of exposures based on their environments. What's the sort of population size of this right. this group? You know, I like you were saying, depending on the types of chemicals that we're looking at or environmental exposures, something like climate change, everyone in the United States is impacted in some way. Most Americans live in areas that do not have air quality that's defined as healthy by the World Health Organization. But there are definitely some populations that have more exposures. We call these cumulative exposures. So exposures from multiple sources. And we call these environmental justice communities, or you may see it described as fence line communities. And these are communities often lower income communities, they may be communities of colors in which we unfortunately, the way that our regulatory system works and the way that our permitting system works, polluting industries often get located in these communities where you've got low income residents, they've got multiple polluting industries there. And then they have other issues related to social determinants of health. They may be dealing with historic racism 
and, you know, racist policies. They may be dealing with lower quality schools, lack of access to healthcare, lack of access to fresh fruits and vegetables and healthy foods. And so it's those same communities as we're looking at who is most impacted by the different social determinants of health. These are also usually the same communities that are also being that are having higher or more exposures to environmental contaminants. So you've given us a really kind of great overview of environmental health and how our environments can affect our sexual and reproductive health. If we can kind of move back from the big picture and move into the clinic, as most of our listeners are clinicians, when should a provider take the time in a visit to ask about possible environmental contaminants or what kind of an environment a person lives or works in? Are there specific signs or symptoms or things a patient might mention that would warrant a thorough environmental health history? So I think that there's a number of different touch points where we can be doing an environmental assessment. I think you know, when we're seeing young people coming in for, you know, their first exams, or if they're wanting to get on some type of birth control, that can just be a great time to maybe not do an environmental assessment, but to talk about some of these things. Because making these changes is great before somebody is even thinking of becoming pregnant, if that's something that they would like to do. And you know, they do have positive health benefits outside of pregnancy. So I loved talking with my patients, you know, sometimes it's like the first visit was talking about like what kind of cosmetics they're using. And it was just a really great way to start having them just thinking about the issue. If you're doing preconception visits, I would definitely include an environmental health assessment as part of that preconception visit assessing for workplace exposures, home exposures. I think now, like one of the areas that we're seeing more and more in the news is around this class of chemicals called PFAS, that we're now seeing a lot of water contamination with PFAS chemicals throughout the United States. So being aware of local water advisories, are they on municipal water or well water? And I know that this can feel like a lot of questions that are maybe different than what we're used to asking, but I feel like because there is so much information now on how environmental exposures impact reproductive health, that we need to start changing this feeling that it's like outside of our kind of normal assessments, that it needs to become part of that regular new patient exam or preconception visit, because there are ways that we can also counsel them to reduce these exposures and things that they can do to reduce their risk. I also think first pregnancy visit or throughout pregnancy, you know, that's a time when people are really looking to make healthy changes. They want to have a healthy pregnancy, have healthy babies, have a home that's healthy and supportive. And so that's a really great time to be doing these type of exposure assessments and providing anticipatory guidance on ways to reduce exposures. And that leads us really well into our next question. How exactly should a provider take an environmental health history assessment? What are some questions to ask? You mentioned asking about what sort of toiletries and cosmetics the patient might use or things like that. 
And some other questions are, do you have access to fresh fruits and vegetables? If yes, do you ever buy organic or have access to organic? There's some really great tools. Environmental Working Group has this great Dirty Dozen and Clean 15 for fruits and vegetables where they take USDA data where they're testing fruits and vegetables for the quantity of pesticide residues on them, as well as the number of pesticide residues. And so the Dirty Dozen are the fruits and vegetables that have the highest number of pesticides or greatest levels. And those are the ones, you know, if you can only afford to pick and choose which you want to buy organic, those are the ones definitely buy organic. The Clean 15 are the ones, the conventional have very little or no pesticide residues. So if you're on a budget, don't waste your money on those to buy organic. Thinking about also things like, are you using pesticides in your home? Like what kind of cleaning products are you using? Same within the workplace. Are you using pesticides in the workplace? What type of work do you do? Could there be other chemicals that you're using in the workplace? I'm just thinking of like my new patient intakes for a pregnant patient. And you do already ask a lot of questions. It's a robust assessment. But I think that it's also a time where you've got a longer visit with that patient. You can definitely spend a little more time to talk about these environmental exposures and then providing, you know, in that new patient packet, some really great information on how to reduce those exposures. Again, patients are really interested in these issues and there's a lot that they can do to reduce the exposures. Again, a wonderful intro into our next question. Because environmental health is such a structural or almost societal issue, it can maybe be a little challenging for clinicians to offer advice or counseling that a patient could realistically take into practice. You mentioned, again, the organic fruits and vegetables, but you know, what if a patient mentions uh, a workplace exposure or the way their house is built has some sort of contaminant in it? What are some good pieces of advice that a clinician could offer patient that is doable and also does have an impact to reduce those environmental exposures. I think that it can be really challenging when some of these are just really systemic issues like air pollution. You know, the individual patient is not going to be able to have very much impact in reducing the air pollution. We can provide guidance on ways to reduce their exposures, but the air pollution is still going to be there. So I think that that can be frustrating as a health professional. And one of the reasons that we as health professionals need to be using our trusted voice in support of policies that reduce air pollution, reduce environmental contaminants because of the significant health benefits that will be realized by these different policies. I also think, you know, being aware of resources that are available in your community, a great example of community resources related to environmental exposures occurs around lead exposures. We know that there's no safe level of lead. It's very damaging to fetal and children's developing nervous systems and 
I think we've done a pretty good job of developing robust resources within communities. So if a provider does find elevated blood lead levels, then there's you know, the local health department or other folks that you can refer to that can help support finding ways, like where is that contaminant coming from in the home or the workplace? And then how can we help reduce those exposures to reduce the lead levels? So I think it depends on what type of exposure is found. To go back to PFAS, it was really exciting to hear just this past summer, the National Academy of Science and Medicine released the first report for clinicians describing what are the health effects of PFAS chemicals? What should we be concerned about? How can we test for it? Because I know as a clinician, I'd be like, I don't even know what blood tests to order. If it's elevated, how do we treat that patient? And so it provides very clear guidance for clinicians on any follow-up that's needed, if there's additional testing that may need to be done. And so I'm hoping that for other kind of more widespread contaminants that we'll start getting more guidance like this that can be really helpful to clinicians because it can be challenging. I mean, there's just so many different topics that we need to stay on top of. That, that it can just be really challenging to stay up to date on all of these different environmental contaminants. And so if a provider wanted to give a client some more information about possible environmental contaminants or exposures or ways to improve sexual and reproductive health through lowering environmental exposures, what would be some good places that a provider could point a client or resources that they could give a client about that? Definitely. The Pediatric Environmental Health Specialty Units, they're federally funded by the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency and the Centers for Disease Control. They're called PESUs for short. And there is one in each EPA region. So there's 10 throughout the United States, and they have tons of materials, both for patients and families, as well as providers. And they're also a really great free resource. If you're seeing a patient, for example, they're pregnant, they're exposed to something in the workplace, and you don't know if it's something they need to be concerned about, you can call the PESU, you can have the patient call the PESU, They'll review the chemical that they're exposed to, provide guidance around that. And it's totally free, which is amazing. For even kind of smaller exposures, they're happy to answer questions if it's something that's coming up in practice. A couple of other great resources, there's out of University of California, San Francisco, there's the Program on Reproductive Health in the Environment. They have patient resources, provider resources, and they also are doing a lot of research around how environmental exposures impact reproductive health. They're a really amazing resource. Another great group is the Breast Cancer Prevention Partners. They're a nonprofit who's really worked on looking at how we can prevent breast cancer. You know, there's so many organizations, you know, it's like race for the cure. Well, what if we could just prevent it from happening in the first place? And they've done some really amazing analyses, created really robust resources showing how it's not the only piece, 
But looking at the environment is definitely one of the pieces that we have to be addressing as we're trying to prevent breast cancer. Another great resource for, I'd say, like consumer products. So for like cleaning products in the home, personal care products is Environmental Working Group. They take a ton of science, pull it together, and they create these really user-friendly online tools. One of them, the cosmetics one, it's called Skin Deep. And you can put any personal care product in there. And the ones that have the lowest toxicity, they're green. The ones that are like middle of the road, they have them as yellow. And on the ones where you really should stay away from them, they have lots of ingredients that have higher toxicities. Those are red. So I think it's really user-friendly, easy for patients to use. When I'm talking with students, I always have them. I'm like, when we're done with our class, let's all of you, I want you to go home and look at something, you know, in your cosmetics bag or in your shower and let's see what you find out because I think it's really eye-opening. Similarly, what are some good resources for clinicians, especially if they want to start addressing environmental health in clinical practice? So learning how to ask about that history, learning, you know, what kind of tests to order if they think someone's had an exposure, where are good places for them to learn about that? Well, again, the PESUs have a ton of great resources. They frequently have webinars. They have a lot of kind of white papers on different pieces that I think are really helpful for folks working in the reproductive health space. Other places that you can go, my organization, the Alliance of Nurses for Healthy Environments, we have an environmental health and nursing free textbook that has a lot of great resources, I think, for any health professional. I would also say folks should be really looking to their professional organizations. I know American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, the American College of Nurse Midwives, all of them have been really active in the environmental health space. And so I'd say going to your different professional organizations. And if you're not finding the tools that you need, I think this is where they can be really helpful in helping to develop those for their members, because it is something that all of us in the reproductive health space really need to be working on and you know, helping to develop more robust tools for all of us to be using. Well, Dr. Hopling, this has been a wonderful conversation, but of course, all good things must come to an end. But before you go, if you had to give our clinician listeners, you know, one final takeaway, the one thing you want them to remember from our conversation, what would that be? I think it would be that I come to health from a very holistic focus. And I think all of us trying to provide holistic reproductive care. It's such a crucial piece to include environmental health within that care and that we need to really stop thinking of it as like an add-on, but it should just be part of that routine care that we're providing to our patients to ensure that their reproductive health is the best that it can be. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Huffling, and for sharing your time and expertise. Thanks for having me. For more content, including previous podcast episodes, search for The Family Planning Files or subscribe to our show on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts.
for transcript of this podcast, as well as other online learning activities and continuing education opportunities, please visit our website at www.ctcfp.org. While you are there, you can sign up to receive our newsletter, Clinical Connections, at the top of the page. You can also follow the National Clinical Training Center for Family Planning on Twitter at NCTCFP, all lowercase, and now on LinkedIn. The National Clinical Training Center for Family Planning is funded by the Office of Population Affairs to provide continuing education, training, and technical assistance to Title X grantees, subrecipients, and service sites, and is supported by DHHS grant number 5, FPTPA 006031-02-00. This podcast is intended for informational purposes only and does not constitute legal or medical advice or endorsement of a specific product. Opinions expressed herein are the views of the contributors and do not necessarily reflect the official positions of the Department of Health and Human Services, or DHHS, Office of the Assistant Secretary of Health, or OASH or the Office of Population Affairs, or OPA. No official support or endorsement by DHHS, OASH, and or OPA is intended or should be inferred. Theme music written by Dan Jones and performed by Dan Jones and the Squids. Other production support provided by the Collaborative to Advance Health Services at the University of Missouri-Kansas City School of Nursing and Health Studies. And finally, thank you to our listeners for tuning in today. We hope that you'll join us next time for another episode of The Family Planning Files.